really warm welcome to the teaching ministry of New Life Church Crawley. We're a multicultural, intergenerational church. And we believe in the gospel of Christ. We believe in spreading his love through his word and through his works. We really hope that you enjoy what you hear today. We'd love for you to connect with us via the usual social media outlets, such as Facebook or on our website. So you're explaining what we're doing with the kids today in the activity packs, thank you. I did know that. She did. Um, we're gonna do things slightly different today. So you can't ever say life's boring with us because every service is different. So children, and we haven't got many children today, so you're gonna to have to work really, really hard. David's gonna be introducing us to the book of First Corinthians. And so what we've got around the room are just some posters that sum up what David's gonna be talking about and what 1 Corinthians is about. And by the end of the service, those posters are gonna be stunning. Because you're gonna color them in, you're gonna look at what the words say, and we're gonna learn from them. And what I would like, if there are any children leaders that haven't been stolen by the media team, if you would like to position yourself by one of the posters, that will be fantastic. So we're going to really make these posters look good, then they can be our focus as we go through this series about 1 Corinthians. So find yourself a poster, find yourself some colouring pencils, and let's get cracking. Thank you. So while we're doing that, could we show the Right Now Media stuff? So for those of you who don't know, we, as a church, we subscribe to, someone has described it as the Christian Netflix. So there's about 20, 25,000 teaching videos and, uh, and things that you can, you can look at uh, that relate to Bible teaching. So we want to show you, yep, so if you don't have um, a sign-in for this already, it's a simple invitation uh, that you accept. You then set up your own password. So I, I don't know that password. That's your password. Then you log in. So they're going to just type in Corinthians there. And you'll see what happens when you type in. So we know we're looking at that. So just a one word search. Um, there's one, Jenny Allen. She's quite a famous uh, American Bible teacher. There's 12 sessions on the book of Corinthians that has a free study guide. And the average is only about nine minutes. Now, one of the advantages with this is if you have the app on your uh, iPhone, then a oh, proper phone, if you have your app on the phone, then you don't even have to watch the video, you can just listen to the audio. So you, there's just a little flick that you switch across, so even if you're in a place you can't watch the video, you can still listen to the audio. So that's 12 sessions. Um, yep, just keep going. Uh, Paul's epistles, again, 14 sessions, quite snappy. Um, New Testament overview, 15 sessions. This is an interesting one. A guy called Dave Stotts, uh, where he goes the Bible background and he travels into the areas. Uh, he's a bit of an explorer, adventurer. So he travels into the areas and you see him where Corinth was and, and some of the ruins of Corinth and he explains that. Again, just about nine minutes long. Um, keep going. So as you can see, you, you can keep going. Uh, and uh, I would encourage this one, how to read 1 Corinthians. You'll see some of the stuff I'm using today is taken from that. You can also find that on YouTube, by the way. Every book of the Bible has this um, animation. Uh, it's a great little thing. They average about eight or nine minutes each, and they have subtitles. Uh, so you can find those in YouTube. Um, who's it? Bible Project, thank you, uh, Chris, that's great. So the Bible Project, if you search it on YouTube, you can find any book. So I would encourage you, even if you can't make the Thursday Bible study, or even if you can, this is a really great way to drip feed at any point in your lunch hour, in your commute, uh, while you're having a coffee. All of the sessions are, are very manageable in that, either visually or audio. So if you haven't got a sign-in, and you're connected, then send us an email. Send it to me before Tuesday. After Tuesday, send it to Kerry, um, and you'll be able to get a sign-in for that, okay? Cool, I would encourage you to do that. Father, as we come to your word today, we, we know the scripture says that we should humbly accept the implanted word which is able to save our souls. So Father, I pray that we would accept your word today 
as it speaks into our life, as it speaks into our experience, as it speaks into what you want the church to be as a spirit-filled community. We pray this in Jesus' name. Have you ever been surprised by, by what someone said? Sometimes that can be negative, can't it? Especially if it's behind your back and then you find out about it later. Sometimes it can be really positive. Have you ever been taken by surprise when you find some feedback, either from a customer or a friend or someone you met, and they said something really nice about you, and it just gives you that warm feeling and glow, doesn't it? Sometimes the surprise can be by, by something humorous. I mean, let, let's be honest, the, the, sometimes the best times in our life are those spontaneous moments of humor where something just says something that takes us by surprise and it just fills our hearts with joy, isn't it? All of those things are really important, but they can't be surprising. And when we look at the book of 1 Corinthians, if you have your Bible, why don't you turn there with me? We're going to look at a lot of scriptures uh, in Corinthians today. Um, so I encourage you to have your phone, your Bible app, whatever it is you use. There's definitely a surprise in Corinthians because this is how Paul starts. This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and from other, our brother. I'm writing to God's church in Corinth, to you who have been called by God to be his saints or his holy people. He makes you holy by means of Christ Jesus, just as he did for all people everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Now, if you know anything about Corinthians, if you know anything about the culture that we're going to look at today, you will know this is a surprise that he's calling them saints. Because <laughs> truthfully, most of the stuff that we learn is because the Corinthians were getting it wrong. It's because they were making all sorts of mistakes. And yet Paul comes and says, you're God's holy people. You're saints. Because even though their behavior wasn't matching it, it was their position in Christ. You're not a saint because someone canonized you. You're a saint because the Bible, if you're a follower of Christ, because of what the Bible says, because of what Christ has done. Now the challenge is, according to Ephesians 4.1, live a life worthy of the calling you've received. That's the challenge, isn't it? Living up to that. But in Christ, we are called saints. We're called God's holy people. And this church is, has been broken apart by, by infighting, by divisions, by, by people sleeping around, by gatherings that have descended into chaos. And Paul has to come and give some teaching on, on, on spiritual warfare, on leadership, on marriage, on relationships, and all the stuff of life that, that we have to do as well. We have two letters, but actually there were four written and part of the challenge for us, of course, is, is it's like listening to one end of a telephone conversation. So we're trying to figure out why is he saying that? What, what's that written? And I'll come on to that in a minute because it's important. But here's a couple of things in terms of the background that may be helpful for you. It's written to a church community that Paul knew well. He really pastored the church and founded it over an 18-month period. And you can read some of the background of that in Acts chapter 18. Corinth was also a major port city and had lots of temples to Greeks and Roman gods. Both the Greeks and the Romans loved their gods, didn't they? They had the pantheon of gods. All, it was you know, a pick and mix of spirituality in the Roman and Greek world. That's why it's like today. That's why the gospel still works today. The gospel is the power of God to salvation. In that sense, it's not worse. It's exactly like New Testament times. Paul's ministering into that and has to change some of their thinking. It was a big economic center and very strategic. It was a, a crossroads, it was a commercial place. And Paul is there around AD 51, verse 52. And maybe think of it like this, it's New York, Los Angeles, Las Vegas, with a little bit of London and Brighton, if you know what I mean, thrown in. So that, that was Corinth, that's what it represented in the ancient world. So this is a strategic, important place. It's a buzzing, cosmopolitan, wealthy city with lots of temples. In fact, it's thought that one temple had a thousand priests. And because of the fertility religion, they were basically prostitutes in the temple. People came to sleep with them in order for God to bless them. So this is the context in which Paul is writing. 
And so Paul starts the church and he leaves it because he's a pioneer. He's going on to other areas. And then he gets these reports of some of the things that are going wrong. And so Paul has to write two of the letters we have out of four in total because reports have come back to him and he has to address some problem issues. And there's five main sections. And in each of the sections, we'll go through them quickly in a minute. But in each of the sections, Paul is addressing the problem and then tells how gospel living is the answer to those problems. He's saying you're not living out what you say you believe. And so the gospel should be transformative in your mind. It should be transformative in your lifestyle. It should make a difference. So what you have to do is learn to think about every area of your life, every area of your life through the lens of the gospel. Church is not just for Sundays. It's not just what we believe in our head. Every area of our life has to be lived through the lens of the gospel. That's challenging, isn't it? Because sometimes we, we kind of want to park God to the side. And God says, no, I'm Lord over everything. It's every area of your life, including your sexuality, as we'll see. So in marriage, relationships, friendships, families, all of this is to point the way to Jesus. And they're living far short of that. Now let me say uh, five minutes about understanding and interpreting the Bible, because I think this is really key. Gordon Fee is a Pentecostal scholar. You'll see a massive book on my shelf uh, where he's written probably the single best commentary on 1 Corinthians. Very technical, very detailed. But he talks about interpreting and understanding the Bible, and this is what he says. Whether one likes it or not, every reader at the same time is an interpreter. Do you realize that? Every time you read scripture, you're interpreting it. Most of us assume as we read that we also understand what we read. <laughs> we also tend to think that our understanding is the same as the Holy Spirit's, our human's authors. However, we invariably bring to the text all that we are with all our experiences, our culture, our prior understanding of words and ideas. And sometimes what we bring to the text, unintentionally to be sure, leads us astray or else causes us to read all kind of foreign ideas into the text. We do that, don't we? We bring our culture, we bring our experience, we bring our understanding into scripture. So from different cultures, you may read the same scripture completely different to me. I remember when I was studying in my master's, degrees, master's degree and there was a guy who'd been a missionary in South America and he was talking about the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, most of us in the UK, if we're reading that story, we will see us as the Good Samaritan going to help others because we have the resources, we have the means, we see it that way. But in South America, they don't. Because if you're oppressed and you're poor and you don't have much, you don't see yourself as the Good Samaritan. You see yourself as the one who's been beaten up so your way of reading scripture is very legitimate, but it's influenced by your culture, your background, and your experience. And so what we have to do is get to what, as much as we're able to, the original meaning. Because a text can never mean what it never meant. That's important, isn't it? A text can never mean what it never meant to original hearers. So, for example, when you see in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about the resurrection. And in that, he talks about baptism for the dead. And this is where the cults always go wrong. So the Mormons have taken Paul's acknowledgement that some have done that as a justification. So the Mormons baptize people for the dead. Did you not know that? They will baptize people for the dead because they say that guarantees them their entrance into heaven. So part of their ritual going to the temple with their, their special secret underwear, believe me, they have them, they do, and they'll go to the temple and they will allow people to be baptized for the dead because they think that will gain entrance to heaven. Paul was not affirming baptism from the dead. He was simply recording the fact that it happened. But if you read into the text, then you're going to come to the wrong conclusion. Text can never mean what it never meant. In John chapter 1, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word. What do the Jehovah Witnesses do? They come and they say, no, 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 that's not right. It means Jesus was a God. 
That's why they have their own translation. But it, it actually is a completely wrong understanding of the original Greek. But that's where cults come in. That's where false teaching come in. And John was very definitely saying that Jesus was God because Jesus claimed to be God more times than we can imagine. In fact, 42 times he said, he who sent me. So Jesus knew he was from God. He knew he was God. But the Jehovah Witnesses have twisted that. So a text can never mean what it never meant. And so we have to try and understand some of what it means for us. The snake handlers, have you ever seen any photographs or watched any programs of the snake handlers? In, in the southern states of America, there's a whole branch of churches that is part of their worship. They bring the snakes out and they hand the snakes out and, and, and they worship the snake handlers. That, that's part of their worship. And most normal people would say, that's not what Jesus was saying in Mark 16. He didn't say, use your, your little python or your anaconda or whatever it is. Don't, you don't bring them out and worship. But it, he says, no, no deadly poison and, and no snake will kill you. And we see in Acts, that's exactly what happened to Paul. Paul shook off the snake and, and nothing happened to him. So people can often take one verse out of context and make it say what they want. So we have to be careful. And if you remember nothing else, remember this golden rule for all of scripture. A text can never mean what it never meant. That will save you a lot of heartache as you come to scripture. So what, what's the root of the problems in Corinthians? Let me suggest a couple. Paul is, is teaching the gospel. He's preaching about the kingdom of God. And in their, their enthusiasm to embrace the new life, they're actually picking up Greek thinking. They're actually picking up Roman thinking. And they said, well, okay, we now have the spirit as evidenced by speaking in tongues and the other spiritual gifts such as prophecy. We now have the spirit. So the body's not important because that's what Greek thinking was. The, the body was only a container for the soul. So you can do what you want with the body. It's the, the soul that really matters. But actually, Paul comes on and says, and we'll see that in later weeks, our eternal future is not some disembodied spirit. Our bodies are going to be transformed and redeemed. I think that's worth a good amen. amen. Especially if you've got some aches and pains. Huh? Our bodies are not going to be discarded with, we don't know exactly how they're going to be transformed, which is why in 1 Corinthians 15 he says, it's like a seed. You can't tell by that seed, what tree it's going to grow into or what plant. And the same with our bodies. It's sown imperishable. You know what I mean. It's not going to die. I'll not try and confuse myself and get that. But the body that we have will be transformed and redeemed in the same way that Jesus' physical body was. So he comes on to say it's actually really important. So let's look at a couple of verses. First Corinthians 6. Paul is coming and making a very simple point. What you do with your body is really important. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. You say, I'm allowed to do anything. Now, in, most of your Bibles will probably say, in, quote, in quotes there, I'm allowed to do anything. Because that was a, a slogan, that was a catchphrase of the Corinthian culture. Oh, we're allowed to do anything. We're free. You say, I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. And even though I'm allowed to do everything, I must not become a slave to anything. For you say food was made for the stomach and the stomach is food. This is true, though someday God will do away with both of them. But you can't say that our bodies were made for sexual immorality. They were made for the Lord. And the Lord cares about our bodies. And God will raise us from the dead by his power just as he raised our Lord from the dead. Don't you realize that your bodies are actually part of Christ? Should a man take his body, which is part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? And then let's, verse 19. Don't you realize that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself, for you were bought with a price, so you must honor God with your body. So Paul's talking about living what it means to, to be a follower of Christ. And there was this indulgence, this hedonism 
that was there in Corinthians because they said the body's not important. It's only a container for the soul. We can do what we like. Paul says, I don't think so. You've got that wrong. The second problem was, was almost the opposite. It's kind of this uh, strict asceticism or, or, or self-denial. And often that's what happens, isn't it? We, we, there's a pendulum swing. That happens sometimes in our own life. It sometimes happens in churches as an over, uh, overreaction to something that's gone wrong. It goes the other way, and it, which is equally as wrong. And that's exactly what happens with, with some people. He's saying you're, you're promoting the celibacy. You're promoting that the sex isn't right within marriage. You're promoting this disbelief in the bodily resurrection. You're, you're picking up, as the Eastern philosophies do, Eastern religions, Buddhism and Hinduism, promote the idea that release from the body is the ultimate good. That's what they say. But Paul doesn't say that. Paul's talking about something very different. Look at what he goes on. In chapter 7, now regarding the questions you asked in your letter, wouldn't it be nice to have those questions? Yes, it's good to abstain from sexual relations, because there's, but because there's so much sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. The husband should fulfill the wife's sexual needs and the wife should fulfill her husband's sexual needs. The wife gives authority over her body to the husband and the husband gives authority over his body do not deprive each other of sexual relations unless you both agree to refrain from sexual in intimacy for a limited time so you can give yourselves more completely to prayer. So within marriage, there should be that normal sexual relationship. We can't deprive, we shouldn't deprive. Scripture is very clear that our body does matter and our body matters in relationship. And then the other thing that they, they had a problem of, we've mentioned this a couple of times recently, is this idea, oh, well, if the kingdom of God is common, Jesus, then we have everything of the kingdom now. Look, we can speak in tongues. We have the gift of prophecy. We have all of the kingdom now. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, Paul has to address that because they're boasting about these things. And just interestingly, while, while you're turning there, 1 Corinthians 4, 8 and 9, in chapter one, he commends them for the fact that they have spiritual gifts. He said, you're not lacking in any spiritual gift. So he's not giving them a hard time and saying the spiritual gifts are wrong. He said, you've misunderstood what God is doing through the use of the spiritual gifts. He said, verse eight, chapter four, you think you already have everything you need. You think you're already rich. You've begun to reign in God's kingdom without us. And I wish you were really reigning. For them, we'd be reigning with you. Instead, I sometimes think God has put us apostles on display like prisoners of war at the end of the victor's parade condemned to die. We have become a spectacle to the entire world, to people and angels alike. So if you know anything of Roman history or you've seen Gladiator, when a king and a country was defeated, all the generals would be led in a train, in a procession behind the victorious Roman general Sometimes they, they would be made blind, their eyes would be poked out, uh, and they would be subjected to great spectacles. And Paul's coming and saying, okay, you're reigning, you're the kings, you've all the kingdom now, so why is it that we're put on public display in this way? Why is it that, as he says later in Corinthians, I've been shipwrecked, stoned, left for dead, beaten, all of those things, but you're such kings? He said, no, you're misunderstanding something about the kingdom now. Yes, we receive something of the kingdom now, but the full package will come one day. The kingdom of God has come, but not yet fully. That's why we see healing, but not everyone is healed, let's be honest. That's why we see some of the gifts of the Spirit, but we also need to grow in those gifts as well. That's why we are holy before God, but we have to grow in sanctification and in our lifestyle because all of the kingdom has not come yet because there's still death. Even Lazarus died again. Even Lazarus died again. And so they're having this idea and it's a very tri triumphalist idea, but Paul comes and says, no, forget that. That's not the whole truth of the gospel. As David mentioned uh, recently, Peter gets led out of prison James gets beheaded. How is that fair? How is that right? We don't always know the mind and the thoughts and plans of God. And sometimes things happen that are not good 
and we don't understand. And it's okay to live with that tension because the kingdom of God has come, but not yet fully. See, I believe in healing. When I go to Sri Lanka and when we go to Pakistan, Saj was there, and much to his surprise, remember Saj? Two people that he prayed for were instantly healed. He'd never prayed for anyone before. One, one of the meetings we were in, a lady had a tumor, a breast tumor, and she came back the next night and said, when we prayed for her, uh, we laid hands on her head just to clarify. We put our hands on her head and the breast tumor disappeared. She felt it disappearing as we prayed for her and came back the next night to say she's clear. I believe in healing. I believe we should pray for healing. Some of you have seen already that Shane got a completely clear result. I don't think that's an accident, huh? I think that was God's hand on his life. But we also have to live with the tension that sometimes people don't get healed. Sometimes they don't. And now is not the time to explore that. But I do believe in healing. But let's not have this triumphalist view. Let's not have this view that's not in the Bible that somehow we can click our fingers and God has to answer our prayer. God's God. We pray for healing, we pursue it, we ask God, but the results are in his hands. So let's, let's very quickly go on and look at these kind of five sections. Today we're, we're just wanting to get this overview and Kerry and the, and the others in the team will pick up over the next couple of weeks as we go through it. Number one, firstly, in chapters 1 to 4, the problem is that there are divisions in the church. Paul had left and there were some other teachers who had come through, namely Apollos and Peter. And because of the Greek uh, mentality and Greek thinking, they liked eloquent people. They liked oratory. They liked speech. They liked logic. So Paul, it seems, wasn't very impressive in how he looked or he wasn't very impressive in his manner of speaking. But Apollos was good. Paulus was polished. Peter, we know, was a good speaker. And so there's, there's these divisions that have started to come in. And look at chapter 4, verse 4. Sorry, chapter 3, verses 48. When one of you says, I'm a follower of Paul, and another says, I'm a follower of Apollos, aren't you just acting like people of the world? After all, who is Apollos? Who is Paul? We're only servants through whom God, as, through whom you believe the good news. Each of us did the work God gave us. I, Paul, planted the seed in your hearts. Apollos watered it, but it was God who made it grow. It's not important who does the planting or who does the watering. What's important is that God makes the seed grow. The one who plants and the one who works, waters work together with the same purpose. And both will be rewarded for their own hard work. For we are both God's workers. You are God's field and you are God's building. So Paul's coming and I think he's been quite sarcastic because he can be. I think he's been quite sharp because he can be. He says, are you kidding me? Why are you pitting one leader against another? Why are you pitting one preacher, preacher against the other? That's carnal. That's worldly. That's what the world does. But in the church you shouldn't be doing that. It doesn't matter about the individuals. We shouldn't be gathering around a personality, but the person of Christ. That's what it's about. And so Paul comes and says, while you might prefer one leader over another, you may get on with someone better than the other, and that's normal humanity. Don't make that a source of division. Don't let that destroy the church because, oh, I'm glad David's gone away, I prefer carry preaching. Don't make it a source of division. I'm happy when I go away and people come back and go, oh, it was brilliant while you were away. <laughs> I'm not joking. Because you see, a sign of a good leader is not things falling apart when you're away. A sign of good leadership is when you're away, the team excels. And those of you in the team know that's what I want. I want it so that I can go away and not be worrying about a WhatsApp message or a phone call or an email. Truthfully, I want the team to do well. And my encouragement to you is to support the team while I'm away. Give them your loyalty. Give them your encouragement. Give them your support. If they ask you to do stuff, 
maybe because they're under a little bit of pressure and there is some extra work, do it. Do it willingly. Serve in a way that you can. So it's not speaking poorly one another. And we'll talk about divisions again. Secondly, in chapter 5 to 7, Paul addresses some problems related to sexuality. Look at chapter 5, verses 1 to 2. Heading in my Bible is Paul condemns spiritual pride. And the spiritual pride led them to have a false view of sexuality and the freedom they thought they had. He says, I can hardly believe the report about the sexual immorality going on among you, something that even the pagans don't do. I'm told that a man in your church is living in sin with his stepmother. You're so proud of yourselves, but you should be mourning in sin and, sh- in sin and shame. And you should remove this man from your fellowship. Does that ring any bells with the culture in which we live? Not only are they allowing it, they're celebrating it. They're celebrating what the world doesn't even want to do. And truthfully, we did, at the start of the year, uh, we did a whole seminar. There's notes and teaching on the whole area of sexuality and same-sex sexuality. We did some serious research on it, so we have that. I'm not against anyone. The gospel is for people. But in the church, there's some things that can't be allowed. There's some things that shouldn't be allowed. There's some things that we have to act on. And immorality and sexuality is one of those things. And Paul's saying, this shouldn't be happening. And not only is it happening, you're proud of the fact that it's happening because you think, oh, we're so liberal, we're so free, it doesn't matter. And Paul says, it does matter. These people were worshiping at the local temples and sleeping around with those who worked there. And they're saying things like, well, we live in grace, don't we? God's grace is bottomless. It's, it's okay. And Paul is very clear. No, no, no. The grace of God does not give us the freedom to do as we want, but the freedom to do as we should. 1 Timothy 2 says it. The grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness. Romans 5. Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. There's no way that this is appropriate. And we know this, the damage that's caused by sexual misconduct. So if we are followers of Jesus Christ, then sexual integrity is one of the main ways that we respond to Jesus' love and grace. Now, there is grace for when we make mistakes. Amen? Amen. James 2.13 says that mercy triumphs over judgment. I'm glad of that in my life. Are you? (laughs) Are you glad that's amazing grace? Because we've all made mistakes. We all get things wrong. We're all the same. When it comes to our bodies, Paul reminds them, 3 Corinthians, because Jesus was physically raised from the dead, so will we be. Which means if your body is being redeemed, both now and in the future, then what you do with your body matters. It matters a lot. And you're not free to do with what you want. Paul is being super clear. Followers of Jesus Christ are not free to do what they want in terms of sexual ethics. Thirdly, chapters 8 to 10, the issues are about issues of culture and freedom. Now, even in a small church like this, we have uh, many different cultures. And as we said earlier, that means we bring our experience. That means we bring our background. That means we bring things that are just part of us and we don't even realize we're a product of our own environment. When we first came to England, we suddenly realized that when we went to someone's house and they said, do you want to come around for a cup of tea? <coughs> That's all you got? <laughs> we were starving for months. Every time we were around somewhere, we literally got a t- cup of tea until we cottoned on. These people mean just a cup of tea. Because in Ireland, when we say, would you like a cup of tea in your hand? That's the way to say it. Would you like a cup of tea in your hand? What that means, day or night, there's a full spread that comes with it. You get fed. Hospitality is just something normal. We were shocked. And some of you were shocked when you come to this culture and you see churches and you see things and you think, what the heck's going on? Because you come with your own culture and your own expectations. Now, that's great, and we love the variety. Wasn't the food last week amazing? Man, it was good. 
Well, we didn't get any doggy bags. I don't quite know how that happened. If you got a doggy bags, Lord bless you, but you probably had mine. Um, <laughs> food was great last week. And I, I love the fact that we are multicultural. We sing different songs from different nations. And uh, at the end of the month, we have another Bring and Share dedication. Yeah. <sighs> so we're going to eat again and we'll have more food. And it's great. But the challenge comes when your culture and your personal preference takes domination over the gospel. When your culture and your preference is demanded over everyone else. That's a recipe for disaster, isn't it? And it's so easy that happens. You know, it's, this whole thing about freedom and food preference, it's not whether you dislike quiche and Brussels sprouts. That's not what the freedom of the gospel is about. The Corinthians themselves were divided over meat, food that was offered to idols. Because in the ancient uh, times of Romans and the Greeks, they would offer the meat to their gods. And so Paul, they're writing and saying, Paul, what do we do with this? How do we engage with this? So let's look at 1 Corinthians 10. And this is just a summary. We'll, we'll go into this more detail. David, I think, is dealing with that passage. Uh, so we'll come back to that in a few weeks' time. Verses 23 and 24. Again, notice, notice what they're saying. No, notice the culture. Notice the mindset. It's in quotes. You say I'm allowed to do anything. Have we heard that before? Do we hear that today? <laughs> you say I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. You say I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. Don't be concerned for your own good, but for the good of others. So you may eat any meat that is sold in the mark, marketplace without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Now that's a kind of conclusion summary of Paul, because what Paul's saying is, listen, the earth's the Lord's, everything in it. That's why I'm not a vegetarian. <laughs> I love vegetables. They're great during the fast, but vegetables are what my food eats. Huh? <laughs> I love meat. But I've had people say, no, 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 we should be obeying, obeying the Old Testament food laws. When you begin to look, a text can never mean what it never meant. So you've got to look at the culture. You've got to look why God was saying that. And scripture is very clear. If it's offered unto the Lord, Paul says this, there's nothing that can't be eaten. The challenge is, are you by your freedom going to bring someone else's walk with God into question? So he's not saying you can't eat the meat. It's saying if you know that someone you're with and you're forcing them to have this against their conscience, that's wrong. That's wrong. What you do in your own conscience is fine before the Lord. Just don't pull anyone else down in doing it. So that's not even a sin. We were talking about this earlier, Mark. It's not even a case of if my eating meat offends you. <laughs> because let's be honest, People find it very easy to get offended today, don't they? Mark was telling me that he spoke to someone recently who said, we can't employ people easily now because they're so offended when someone disagrees with them, they can't even work in a team. And that's the culture in which we live. You disagree with someone, oh, I'm offended. It's like, no, I'm sorry, just because I disagree with you doesn't mean I'm being offensive. It just means I disagree with you. But we live in a culture and a climate where if I say anything that disagrees with you, people take offense. But that's not the biblical principle. Some things I do may offend you. But if I'm not causing your conscience to be violated, that's your issue. That's your issue. Your triggers are not actually my issue. <laughs> They're yours. Now, if I'm being offensive, those of you who know me well, if I get something wrong, I'll apologize and I'll apologize quickly. Eat humble pie while it's warm. It goes down quicker. <laughs> I'm used to eating humble pie. Because as you may see, what you see is what you get. So that means sometimes I get things wrong. <laughs> Live with that, okay? Don't be offended. Step three, freedom of Christ. Forgive me. Move on. But you see... This is part of what we have to understand about freedom. It's not simply, does what I do offend you? Is am I trying to draw you in and therefore violate your conscience by my freedom? So we have freedom. In this case, it was the meat. But David will unpack the principles. 
a little bit long. And the principle is, is one of love. It's looking out for the well-being of others. You know, so I don't mind, I don't believe the Bible forbids a, a glass of wine or, or drinking alcohol. It does forbid drunkenness. But there are some cultures where it's completely unacceptable for any Christians to drink alcohol. Not in France, not in continental Europe. In Ireland, I never, never, ever touched alcohol because even non-Christians would say, if you're a Christian, you shouldn't be having alcohol. So it would cause a problem in that culture. And there are cultures where it causes a problem, but there are cultures where it doesn't. So that's where we have to say, well, will the exercise of my freedom cause a problem? So when I go to Sri Lanka, there is a temple there uh, where allegedly Buddha's tooth is. And people will come uh, as pilgrims and travel from all over, including all over the world, and they will go and visit the temple. And just one time I said to the guys, um, I wouldn't mind just going to see it, as almost as a museum visit, you know, that type of thing, just to go see the architecture and all the rest. He says, please don't do that. You will cause problems if Christians see you that, because they will equate that with giving credence and bowing down to an idol. So I never went. I personally feel I was at liberty to go. I was going as a tourist just to see something in architecture, but I never went because of the problems it would cause those guys. Love is the guiding principle in these things. Is my actions going to be loving? Number four, in chapters 11 to 14, Paul addresses problems in their weekly worshiping gathering. You see, they were having some really ecstatic, really powerful spiritual experiences, but the problem is that it was interfering with other people's worship. And part of that was, was they were praying in tongues and unknown languages in such a way that it was disruptive to other people's worship. And unbelievers were coming in and saying, what's happening? He doesn't forbid them in speaking in tongues. In fact, Paul says, I speak in tongues more than you all. And I would encourage you, if you're not baptized in the Holy Spirit and you don't speak in tongues, to seek that from God because tongues is often a gateway gift to the other gifts. It often releases us more for God. But he says in the context of corporate worship, make sure you're doing stuff that builds up the body. So we don't forbid speaking in tongues, but we're not standing, giving someone the microphone and saying, okay, go for it, speak in tongues now. Unless... Someone is going to interpret that. And just as an aside, um, when tongues are, are given like that, as I read scripture, 1 Corinthians 14, tongues are directed towards God, not man. You're praying out of your spirit towards God. Therefore, any interpretation that's given should reflect that. You can look it up for yourself. So Paul is coming and saying, in the midst of these powerful spiritual experiences, don't be interrupting people who are teaching. Don't be interrupting people who are doing stuff because that's disruptive to the whole community. And that's the point of what he's saying. We'll unpack that. And it's chaotic and it's distracting. And again, the principle is love. So 1 Corinthians 13, it's not a marriage sermon. Paul didn't put that in there so the preachers everywhere would have a passage to always refer to in a marriage ceremony. It's sandwiched in between 12 and 14, which you're talking about. What's 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 talking about? Thank you. You do know it's talking about spiritual gifts, don't you? I'm speaking English here too. Thank you. So what's the chapter that's sandwiched in between the ones in spiritual gifts? The message of love. So it's not just about the gifts it's the operation of the gifts, which is why he said, it doesn't matter if your faith can move mountains. It doesn't matter if you can prophesy also, all sorts of things. If you're not operating in love, you're just like a clanging symbol. So this is important for the purpose. I have to say this. <laughs> Some people think that the purpose of gathering is to have intense spiritual experiences or to get a chance to speak their mind. It's not. It's not. There is an order, there is a structure, there is an authority in this place that God has set in place so that things are done decently and in order. Paul says, listen, I'm a big fan of powerful spiritual experiences. 
He writes about it in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, doesn't he? He said there was a man who's taken to the third heaven. He talks about it. He's, he's talking about himself. So he is a fan of spiritual experiences, but he says, what's going to build up the body of Christ? The gathering around Jesus should be orderly so everyone can learn, everyone can sing, everyone can worship and hear God speaking to them. Amen. Number five, Paul addresses problems in their understanding of the resurrection. He devotes one whole chapter to this, packed with teaching. We'll come to that. I think at Easter, I'll be preaching on the resurrection, Easter Sunday. So the problem was because of the whole thing of the body just being seen as a container for the soul, it didn't really matter. Some people were coming and saying, well, actually, it doesn't matter if we believe Jesus rose from the dead physically. It doesn't matter if we don't believe in a bodily resurrection of Jesus. And Paul comes and says, well, actually, it does. It matters quite a lot. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. Tell me this. Since we preach that Christ rose from the dead, why are some of you saying there will be no resurrection of the dead? For if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. And worse, we the apostles would all be lying about God. For we have said that God raised Christ from the dead, the, the grave. But that can't be true if there's no resurrection. He begins by saying that the bodily resurrection is essential to the message. Read the first couple of verses of 1 Corinthians 15. Christ was buried. Christ died. Christ was buried. Christ was raised. That's the fundamentals of the Gospels. And I personally can work with anyone if they believe those three things. I don't need to agree with them on the second coming. I don't need to agree with them on their style of dress. I don't need to agree with them on any secondary issue. But if they'll preach those things of the Gospel then I can stand with them. I can work with them. Paul says we believe in the bodily resurrection because there are hundreds of eyewitnesses, some of whom are still alive. Paul believes in the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's essential to the gospel. He even goes on to show in detail how his victory, Jesus' victory over death, is our future hope. It's part of our assurance of the future. So the resurrection shows to us that the gospel is, is not simply private religion. It's not simply moral advice. It's the truth of the gospel. It's what Christ has done. It opens up a whole new reality. It opens up a whole new spiritual dynamic. It opens up a whole new humanity, a new identity, and therefore a new community under God. That's what the resurrection, that's why it's absolutely critical. So where does the message of the gospel truth need to impact our lives today? Where does it need to impact our thinking? Maybe you've realized some of your thinking, actually you're thinking worldly. Maybe you're thinking in a way that's not according to scripture in one of those areas. Maybe you need to change some of your responses. Maybe you need to think about your daily living this week. This is the truth of the gospel message that we're proclaiming to you. These are the problems that the early church in Corinth had. And we have to have the lens of the gospel to live it out. In our thinking, in our responses, in our daily living. Kerry, you're going to come and draw together some of the stuff that the kids did. And then we're going to finish with the final video song. Is that right? Thank you. Don't look at me like that, Chris, please. It is on now. So if you come, and hopefully, if we've worked well together, you will see some of the things that David's been talking about on the posters that we've been doing. And we'll probably put these up so that you can... Marilyn, you need to come and get yours, darling, really quickly. Well done. Just pick one of them up. Good job. Thank you, Musa. I think it's the other way around. You go that way. 
good job. Well done. So as you can see, a lot of the titles that David was talking about, they're the posters that we've done. And as we go through 1 Corinthians, we'll be learning more about each of these steps. But I think we could find somewhere to put these up so that they stay up as we look at our 1 Corinthians series. So why don't we, and this has just come to me, we haven't got many children here, but we've got quality children here. And we are really, really thankful. <laughs> Sophie clapped a bit loud there. We are really, really thankful for our children. Why don't we just say some prayers for our children? Why don't we just stand up as a congregation while they're standing here and just put your hands out and bless them because they're growing up in a world that has real challenges. And so let's just really thank God for them. And let's just bless them and ask for their protection over them, for blessing over them, that they just have a really fresh encounter with the Spirit to give them the confidence to be who they are, have been made to be. Oh, Father, we thank you for each and every one of the children in new life. We praise you for them and we pray that you will just bless them, that they will know who they are in you and that they will grow up confident in standing for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, if you want to pass the posters to the people that are sitting towards the front of the church, because, no, you're a good try, good try. Well done. Edie, we're going to do an action song. And as you know, I don't do actions, so you can stay here and I'll go to the back and you can copy me from the back. Uh, but we're going to sing. Everything that we've been thinking about today is thinking about the goodness of God. He has done amazing things in our lives. He is for us. And so I think we'll end by singing goodness of God, doing the actions and really praising him in the way that we know how. Thank you so much for joining us today. We hope that you enjoyed the teaching. We'd love to hear from you, so please contact us. All the details can be found on our website. God bless.